Eat and as you do, let's join in prayer together. Father, thank you for the truth that you welcome the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Thank you that you give more grace. Thank you that you give more grace. We thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin. We thank you that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Thank you, Father, for your work of redemption. Thank you for your vast and immense and measureless love for us. We are not deserving of any of it. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice in our place for our sins that we might enjoy all of these great blessings. We pray you would amaze us by who you are and what you've done. Amaze us and help us to slow down long enough to just take it all in to remember how wicked we are and to remember how righteous You are and to remember how You have bridged this great gap and You have brought us to Yourself to be with You, to be in You forever. Lord, open Your Word to us. We want to know You and we want to be moved to the core of our being by the truths of the Gospel. And so would You help us see We thank You for welcoming us. We thank You in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen. The four New Testament Gospels record for us seven sayings of Jesus while He was on the cross. In the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross, He uttered seven significant sentences. First, he uttered a prayer of forgiveness when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Second, he uttered a promise of salvation to the thief on the cross when he said, Truly, today, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Third, Jesus uttered a word of compassion when He entrusted the care of His mother to the Apostle John. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Fourth, Jesus cried with a loud voice in inexpressible agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth, Jesus cried or uttered a cry of suffering when He said, I thirst. Sixth, he let out a declaration of victory when he said, it is finished. And finally, he entrusted himself to his father when he said in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last breath. Each of these seven dying words of Jesus are rich and life-changing truths about who Jesus is and why He came and why He laid down His life. So on this Palm Sunday, as we enter Holy Week and look forward to Good Friday and Easter, I want to focus on just a few of these last words of Jesus 
in hopes that they might fill us with awe and wonder at the heart of Jesus as he laid down his life for our sins. And so turn with me to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 23. The gospel according to Luke, chapter 23. There is no subject more worthy of our attention and our meditation than the meaning of the cross of Jesus. And so notice what Jesus said as He gave up His life for us. I want you to intentionally focus on what Jesus said as it all happened. We'll jump into the Gospel of Luke's account in chapter 23, verse 32. Luke 23 Verse 32, Luke says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is, Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. So as we jump into the middle of Luke's crucifixion narrative, Jesus has already been beaten and flogged to a bloody pulp. He has been spit on and chained and his flesh is torn into shreds. The crown of thorns is piercing into his skull. The physical suffering and anguish and shame that Jesus has already experienced up until this moment is unthinkable. However, Luke's goal is not to just report on the details of the suffering of Jesus and leave it at that. Luke's goal is to show us the meaning of this suffering. What does it all mean? Why must Jesus experience such horrors? And the specific way that Luke reveals the meaning of Jesus' sufferings is through highlighting what Jesus says when he is suffering. The few words Jesus said while He laid down His life on the cross show us 
why he suffered. Jesus' last words reveal the immensity of what he was accomplishing for us. So let's take some time this morning to meditate on these two sayings of Jesus on the cross. The first one is there in verse 34. Jesus prays for forgiveness. Jesus prays for forgiveness. Notice the details that Luke gives us. and Just try to imagine this whole scene in your mind. Luke tells us in verse 32 that Jesus was crucified with two other criminals. This is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors from Isaiah 53. Jesus was lumped with notorious criminals. He was treated just as other lawbreakers were treated, even though He was totally perfect. His death between two criminals is part of the shame and the suffering and the mockery of the cross that Jesus experienced in our place. Jesus did not deserve to be killed with these criminals. We deserve that pain. We deserve that shame. In verse 33, Luke tells us that they crucified Jesus, which as you know means they nailed His hands and His feet to a wooden cross. After beating Him to a pulp, after scourging Him with a whip embedded with pieces of rock and bone, they drove these thick nails through His hands and through His feet. And they raised that cross in the air so that Jesus had to push up on those nails in order to just get a breath. Crucifixion was designed to inflict the maximum pain and the maximum shame on a person. And add to the pain, the cruel and constant mockery that was going on. At the end of verse 34, we see that it says, the soldiers cast lots for His garments. This was also a fulfillment of prophecy and it was a further act of humiliation. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be stripped of your clothes in public? And then have people fight over those clothes and who was going to take them home? Also, Luke 23, 35-37 tells us what the people who were observing all of this were saying. Notice what they were observing and saying. Verse 35, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He is the Christ, His chosen one. The soldiers also mocked Him, coming up and offering Him sour wine and saying, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. It's in the midst of all of this pain, it's in the midst of all of this shame, all of this mockery that Jesus is saying something. If you had been there that day, if you had been one of the onlookers and you saw Jesus' lips moving, what would you think He's saying in this moment? Do you think He's begging for someone to come and rescue Him? To come and save Him out of all of this misery? Do you think He's asking the soldiers for mercy? Do you think He's calling down curses on His executioners and on the religious leaders? No. Notice what Jesus is saying. He is lifted up on the cross in verse 34. And as you imagine Jesus saying this, Don't forget that Jesus did not mumble this under His breath. 
He said this clearly and audibly. And the reason we know that Jesus didn't mumble this is because it's recorded here in the Bible for us to see. In the midst of all of the chaos surrounding the cross, people heard Jesus say these things and they told others what Jesus said. Verse 34, on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus was being cruelly treated and yet even in this moment of great and unjust suffering, He is praying for His enemies. He is praying particularly for forgiveness. Now let this be very clear. Let this be very clear. Jesus is not praying for His own forgiveness. When we say Jesus prayed for forgiveness, He's praying for forgiveness in a very different way than you and I pray for forgiveness. He isn't praying for His own forgiveness. He has nothing that He needs to be forgiven of. He was completely perfect and sinless and spotless. He had no need of forgiveness. And so He's praying for the forgiveness of others. When we pray for forgiveness, we're praying for our own forgiveness. When Jesus prays for forgiveness, He's praying for others. And as we consider what this all means, let me highlight four truths that we learn from this prayer for forgiveness. Four truths. Number one, Jesus is amazingly compassionate and gloriously gracious. Do you see what this all means? Jesus is amazingly compassionate and gloriously gracious. This is the point of this prayer of Jesus. He is a forgiving Savior. Like, this is who He is. He is very much unlike anyone else. While everyone else, including myself, would have been condemning these cruel men, Jesus is pleading for them to receive mercy and grace. Now, some want to get into a debate here about who Jesus is specifically praying for. Is He praying only for His elect? Or is He also praying for people who would never be forgiven of their sin? But I think that debate is to miss the main point of the heart of Jesus in this prayer. Jesus is praying for all those who are responsible for His suffering and for His death. This prayer is a general plea to the Father to withhold immediate judgment. That's what they deserved in this moment. They deserved immediate and swift judgment. And Jesus is praying for the Father to withhold that. Jesus is showing compassion and mercy to these Roman soldiers and these Jewish religious leaders and these hard-hearted bystanders who were made in His image. Jesus is asking the Father to display patience that He might accomplish the perfect and final atonement. Also, friends, when we ask the question, who is Jesus praying for here? We have to see ourselves in this prayer. The Roman soldiers and the mocking Jews were not the only ones responsible for the cross of Jesus. Our sins, my sin, put Jesus on that cross. And so Jesus is praying for forgiveness even while He's dying. He's praying for our forgiveness. Jesus was thinking about all of those 
whose sins nailed him to that tree. We all deserve condemnation and judgment, but Jesus is the gracious and forgiving Savior. This is who He is. When you're in a moment like this, with all of the pain, with all of the shame, you know, a moment like this, what comes out is your true heart. That's what you see when you're in the midst of pain and suffering. And here's the true heart of the Savior. He is a forgiving Savior. And listen, Jesus doesn't just forgive some of our sin. He died for our sin, past, present, and future. His forgiveness is comprehensive for those who treasure Him. And so friend, are you a sinner? Are you in need of forgiveness? Has your sin weighed you down? Is your guilt evident in your heart today? Are you dismayed by the fact that even your best deeds nailed Jesus to this cross? Are filthy rags in God's sight? Is, is your life, does your life just feel like one failure, one sin after another? This is the great news of this prayer. Jesus is amazingly compassionate and gloriously gracious. He, listen, Jesus wants to forgive you of all your many sins. This is the kind of Savior He is. He is amazingly compassionate and gloriously gracious in His forgiveness. Well, let me share the second truth about this prayer for forgiveness that we see, and it's this. Jesus hates sin. We learn from this prayer for forgiveness that Jesus hates sins. So as He suffers, notice that Jesus is more concerned with sin than He is with the pain and agony that He's experiencing. Sin is what breaks the Savior's heart as He dies on the cross. Jesus does not pray for our comfort. He does not pray for our safety. He does not pray that we will live happy, pain-free lives. Jesus prays for our primary need. He prays for the forgiveness of our sins. This is how much He hates sin. And this is how passionate He is about forgiving our sin. The third truth about this prayer for forgiveness that we learn is this. Ignorance is no excuse for sin. Ignorance is no excuse for sin. So what does Jesus mean by they know not what they do? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This raises a question in my mind. Why forgive a person for what he doesn't even know he's doing? Like, isn't it an either-or kind of thing? Like, either you know what you're doing and you need to be forgiven, or you don't know what you're doing and thus you don't need to be forgiven. Why does Jesus draw attention to their ignorance of what they're doing and ask God to forgive them? Well, I don't think Jesus is saying that they don't know what they're doing is wrong. Like, everybody knows what they were doing to Jesus is wrong. Rather, I think what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out the ignorance of just how heinous their sins really were. I think Jesus is referring to the enormity of what they are doing. The Roman soldiers did not understand that they were killing the author of life. 
The Jews didn't submit to Jesus as the promised, long-awaited Messiah. They were unaware of just how atrocious their actions were. And Jesus says that's sin. We are guilty of not knowing how serious our sins are. The people who killed Jesus should have known that what they are doing, they should have known what they were doing, and knowing is, is sin that needs to be forgiven, and not knowing is sin that needs to be forgiven. Ignorance is sin. And so the point is that even though there's ignorance involved, sins of ignorance still need forgiveness. We are held accountable for what we should know, even if we don't know it. When we stand before God one day, we will not be able to claim ignorance as an excuse for our sin. We will not be able to claim we didn't know. Fourth truth about this prayer of forgiveness that we learn is this. Like Jesus, we should be ready to forgive others. Jesus is a perfect example of His own teaching. Jesus commanded us to forgive our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated the very attitude that we are to have toward those who wrong us. Since Jesus forgives those who kill Him, you and I can forgive those who wrong us, right? If Jesus forgives those who kill Him, then we can forgive those who wrong us. Forgiveness is a distinctively Christian virtue, right? We forgive because we have been forgiven. And so if there is any unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, look at the example of Jesus. Is there unforgiveness in your heart? Is there a spouse or a, a child or a parent, a friend, a co-worker that you harbor unforgiveness toward? Why? Why will you not extend them forgiveness? When you have been forgiven of killing Jesus, of hanging Jesus on the cross, will you turn around and refuse to forgive others' lesser sins towards you? This is, this is the powerfully countercultural prayer that Jesus prays on the cross. You see, usually when we suffer, what happens? All our attention is directed inward toward ourselves. But here's Jesus, the Savior, the perfect example of considering others better than ourselves. He is extremely compassionate and gracious Savior who is looking out upon history and praying for God's patience to be had so that we can repent of our sins and trust in Him alone and find this full and free forgiveness of our sins. And friends, this prayer shows us the meaning of the death of Jesus. What does it all mean? Why did He suffer such? And he died to forgive sinners. He died for our forgiveness. And so has your sin been forgiven once and for all by the single sacrifice of Jesus? And do you enjoy and experience Jesus' ongoing forgiveness of your sin? If not, I urge you to run to Jesus now, plead with Him for His forgiveness, and thank Him that He's already purchased it for you. Jesus prays for forgiveness. But the second saying of Jesus on the cross in this text is this. It's in verse 43. Jesus promises paradise. Jesus promises paradise. 
So beginning in verse 39, Luke tells us more about the criminals who were crucified with Jesus. Notice the first criminal joins in the mockery and derision of Jesus. Luke says the first criminal, notice the word, railed at Jesus and taunted Him by asking for another miracle. However, the other criminal in verse 40, we'll call him the second criminal, rebukes the first criminal, the mocking criminal, and ultimately he gets this sweet promise from Jesus in verse 43. Notice that both criminals ask Jesus to save them. The first criminal asked in mockery. He didn't think Jesus had the power to save. But the second criminal humbled himself and trusted Jesus as his Savior. Friends, there's a huge difference between asking Jesus to save you and asking Jesus to save you. One is asking in unbelief. One is asking without really believing that He can do that or that He's sufficient enough to save you. One is asking in faith. And so notice what, this, what Jesus says to this second criminal in verse 43. What a promise this is. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What an awesome promise from our awesome Savior, from our forgiving Savior. Let's meditate on this statement. Let's consider what this promise means by considering four statements about it as well. Here's the first one. Number one, this criminal, this second criminal, is, picture, is a picture of true repentance and true faith. The second criminal is a picture of true repentance and faith. In fact, notice Six things we're told about this second criminal. Don't try to take all of these notes. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Six things we're told about this second criminal. First, he feared God. In verse 40, notice criminal number two. Ask criminal number one a powerful question. Do you fear God? It's as if he recognizes the working of God in his own crucifixion here. He knows God is the one who put him on this cross Ultimately, and so he rebukes his fellow criminal for not fearing God. Secondly, he admitted his sin. Verse 41 is staggering to me. Here's a man who's known as a criminal. He's being crucified because of his sins. And what does he do? He acknowledges his own sin and admitted it. Third, he knew he deserved his punishment. He knew he deserved it. He not only acknowledges his sin, but notice he acknowledges that he's being treated justly for his sin. He knows he is reaping what he has sown. He's taking full responsibility for his sin. I deserve to be here. Fourth, he embraced Jesus' perfection. At the end of verse 41, notice this criminal recognizes that Jesus is the only one who doesn't deserve this punishment. He embraces the fact that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Fifth, he submitted to Jesus as his king. So in his request to Jesus in verse 42, notice this criminal asks Jesus to remember him when Jesus comes in his kingdom. And so he's acknowledging that Jesus is the king. He's submitting to Jesus' lordship. This is the irony of this moment. And I think Luke is intending to highlight this for us. Here's the irony. The one hanging on the middle cross 
is the king. He's being mocked as the false king. Oh, hail Jesus. You saved others, why don't you save yourself? He's the actual king. He's mocked as a false king, but he's the only true king of all kings. And the second criminal is the only one who recognizes it and verbalizes it. Sixth, he asked for Jesus' salvation. He asked. He asked. He knew what he needed. He needed Jesus, and he asked Jesus to remember him. And he heard the sweet promise of Jesus. Not one day when I come into my kingdom, but an even sweeter thing than what the criminal asked. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This second criminal is a great picture for us of what it means to trust in Jesus. We must fear God. We must admit our sin. We must embrace the perfection of Jesus. We must submit to Jesus as our King. And we must ask Him for His grace. Ask Him for His mercy. Here's the second truth we learn from this promise. Salvation is all of grace. I believe that this second criminal was saved on that cross. And what he teaches us is that the salvation of a sinner is all God's grace. I think this is one of the most prevailing lessons we learn from this promise of Jesus, is that the salvation of any sinner is owing to the grace of God. Listen, this criminal could do nothing to contribute to his salvation. He couldn't feed the poor. He couldn't tithe on his income. He couldn't attend church. He was not baptized. He didn't lead anyone else to salvation that we know of. And he didn't do any good works at all. All he could do was ask. Friends, we can do nothing to contribute to our salvation. When God saves, he saves by his grace alone through the work of Jesus. And so if you're here and you've, you've fooled yourself into thinking that it's somehow too late for you, to, for God to save you, that you've lived this terrible life and nothing but judgment awaits you, I urge you to consider this criminal being crucified next to Jesus. This is a man who was dying because of his wretched life. All he had left, the only thing he had going for him was that he had just another few minutes of life to ask the Savior to save him. And what did that simple faith get him? What did that simple faith gain him? Did Jesus stiff arm him? Did Jesus say, are you crazy? No way, sinner. Who are you to ask me for forgiveness? Jesus will never reject anyone who comes to Him in faith. He will never cast out someone who comes to Him for His grace because His salvation is all of grace. Just imagine for a moment a scene in heaven when this criminal appeared there. I'm indebted to Alistair Begg for this image, but just imagine that an angel begins to ask this criminal 
some questions about his experiences, some questions about his beliefs, kind of like we do here when we have a membership interview when someone wants to join our church. The angel comes up to this criminal and says, so when were you baptized? The man just looks at him with sort of a blank stare because he has no idea what the angel is asking him. And so the angel decides to ask him a more theological question. So what do you believe about the doctrine of justification? The man looks even more confused. And so the angel just sort of abruptly asks, why are you even here? And all this man can say with certainty is, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only reason I'm here. I don't know what it would be like when we stand before those pearly gates and enter into the kingdom, but if there's any question about why you should be there, please do not answer that question by saying something you did or something you said. The only answer to that question is because of the man on the middle cross. That's the only way. And so please hear this loud and clear. Please hear this as clearly as I know how to say it. No one, absolutely no one is saved on the basis of their works or on the basis of their perfect theology. Anyone who is saved is saved by the grace of Jesus alone. Period. Full stop. And here's the third truth about this promise that we learn. When believers die, they go immediately into the presence of King Jesus. When believers die, they go immediately into the presence of Jesus. So the word paradise is simply a reference to being with Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, with the Father, in heaven, is a paradise like no other. Paradise is where Jesus is. And notice that Jesus says to this criminal, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say one day soon. Jesus doesn't say after my second coming. doesn't say after you spend some time in purgatory. This criminal was with Jesus that very day, immediately after he died. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of soul sleep or purgatory. Some Christians have taught throughout the years that believers go into a state of unconsciousness until Christ returns. But Jesus didn't say, today you will no longer have consciousness of anything that's going on. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul didn't say, my desire is to depart and sleep for a long period of time. Rather, he said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And so friends, let this truth be fixed in your mind and be the cause of great comfort as you think about your own death and as you think about the death of your loved ones in Christ. At the very moment of death, the very moment The souls of believers go immediately into the presence of the Lord. To die in Christ is to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so the souls of believers 
Yes, they still wait the final resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth at the second coming of Jesus, but to be with Jesus is a place of unfathomable glory for our souls. It is to be totally satisfied with and in Jesus the Savior. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus promised the church at Ephesus, He said, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This second criminal ate from that satisfying tree of life that very day in paradise with Jesus. The fourth and final truth about this promise is this. If all of this is true, then it means this. Jesus can save anyone. Jesus can save anyone. If He can save a criminal like this, if He can save me, then He can save anyone. So we have no idea what this man's crimes were. The other, the other Gospels tell us that he was a thief, but there were, his crimes were serious enough to be crucified for. And we know from the other Gospels that this criminal joined in the mockery of Jesus while they were heading to the cross with this other criminal. So evidently before the Lord changed his heart and opened his eyes, this criminal had been just as hard-hearted as the other one, reviling Jesus. And this shows the power of King Jesus to save the foulest sinner who comes to Him in faith. The Lord is willing to save all who come to Him no matter how stained, no matter how wretched their soul. Jesus can save the chief of sinners. He can save the most wretchedly stained sinner alive. What a Savior. What a powerful Savior who loves to save His people. And so church, as we approach Good Friday and Easter this week, let's think about the meaning and purpose of the cross of Jesus, of the death of Jesus for our sins. He died, why? To forgive us of our sins. And He died, why? To make a way for us to be in paradise with Him forever, for all eternity. And so I urge you, I plead with you today, turn from all the vain things that charm you most and turn to Jesus who is your only hope, who is my only hope for salvation and eternal forgiveness and eternal life. Trust the man on the middle cross. Trust the man on the middle cross. Trust him for forgiveness and trust him for eternal paradise. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are a forgiving Savior. We thank You that for Your forgiveness is not partial or incomplete. We thank You that Your forgiveness is full and complete and total for those who trust in You. So Lord, we thank You for the forgiveness You've won and the forgiveness You continue to offer to us. If we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray your sheep would cry out to you for that forgiveness right now. And Lord, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for making a way for us to be in paradise with you forever. 
We look forward to seeing you face to face. And we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We long for you to come set all things right. We long to be in your eternal kingdom where you will reign as the king forever and ever. We thank you for your grace that has made all of this possible. There's nothing we stand on but your righteousness and your grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Lord, help that to be our attitude at all times and always. We praise you. Get glory for yourself from your church this morning. We praise you. We want to celebrate what you have done for us So help us, Lord, even as we sing, even as we interact with one another, Lord, help us to follow you, to obey you, to glorify you. And it's in your your great name we pray. Amen.